And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I could not be more excited to be sitting across today from John Hambrock and Ann Morse Hambrock, who've both been on the morning show any number of times, and particularly uh, in, in recent years talking about the wonderful comic strip The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, which appears in the Kenosha News and uh, in newspapers all across the country. And uh, this is a comic strip that was created by John Hambrock. It made its debut way back in 2006, I think, which seems incredible that that much time has has gone on. And um, the reason we want to talk about uh, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee once again today, which is written and drawn by John Hambrock and colored by Ann Morse Hambrock, is because the comic strip won the highest award that can be given to a newspaper comic strip short of a Pulitzer Prize. And uh, it, we're talking about the Silver Rubin for newspaper comic strips bestowed by the National Cartoonist Society Award. And how long ago was that that you were uh, given this award? Uh, September 15th. Okay. Yeah, so just recently. Yeah, no kidding. So anyway, we uh, obviously wanted to have the Hambrocks back on the morning show to uh, talk about this uh, momentous occasion and this uh, award that was given to the brilliant mind of Edison Lee, which I'm sure many of you enjoy as I do. So, John Hambrock and Morse Hambrock, we welcome both of you back to the morning show. Uh, Greg, I'm really glad to be here. This is great. Thank good. Anne, are you... Am I, am I in? Yeah, yeah. good, good, good. Just making sure you're uh, up and loud. Good, great. Good to have both of you here. Absolutely wonderful. So, we'll get to the award and all of that and the the big night when this was announced and so on, but for the sake of uh, any listeners who maybe don't remember kind of the backstory of all of this, uh, I think it would be good to at least briefly retrace some of that. And maybe we should begin with the fact, John, that uh, long before the debut of The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee, you had long pondered and even attempted a couple of launches of of comic strips before this this comic strip that finally took flight just sketch that for our listeners yeah well i want to say it goes back and ann and i I disagree on this but i want to say 30 (laughs) years Ah. uh our young our oldest son was i think a year old and literally i came home one night from work i worked in chicago and i came home and i said to ann just out of the blue you know i'd like to do a, a comic strip and greg i have no idea where that came from i think she had been influencing me when I was sleeping at night, giving me little, <laughs> little talks about what I wanted to do. Because <laughs> she I was, was always in the comics. comics fan. Um, uh. And decided to give it a try. And I had no idea where to begin. I mean, really had no idea. I went to the library, asked the librarian, you know, who do I talk to about doing a comic? And you get these stares and, oh, well, <laughs> you know, maybe try this or this or this. And so they put me in touch with information that would get me in the door you know, which I did had didn't have any idea at the time that this door was heavily guarded, and uh, that it took a lot to get in, even to get that door to open. Um, so I tried for years to get various uh, comic creations through that door and into the hands of these syndicates. And and uh, one of the first comics I worked on actually was one that we had created together. It was called Second Nature. We did it for a couple years, and sent it off to the major syndicates. There were quite a few at the time. And uh, got some positive feedback, which was great. And when you get that feedback, it's like when you buy a lottery ticket for the first time and you win. <laughs> you think, oh, this is easy. I can do this. Well, it wasn't that easy. But they, they, they offered encouragement and said, try this or come back to us in six months or no, this is not what we're looking for. 
Do I remember correctly that when you created that and you felt really good about it, a problem was that maybe some other comic strip had been launched right around the same time that was a little too similar, which points to the fact that even if you come up with something wonderful, if there's already something in the pipeline that that resembles it, that might, the timing just n- might not be right. Am I remembering that correctly? You are correct. The timing on Second Nature was they had just launched the comic Over the Hedge. So, uh, yes. And, and I'd like to pull, pull something in here. He recently dug out all his rejection letters from those years before we went to the award ceremony. I think we just wanted to remind ourselves. Uh, and, and for anybody listening out there that's trying to – I don't know how many people still try to pursue syndication because there are so many more avenues now. But there was something that we could see in those letters now having been in the business for so long, that we kind of missed at the time. And it was that despite all the encouragement, all the kind words about, yes, you you're, you have talent, we love the art, we love the writing, what they were subtly saying in each of these letters was, but not this concept. We can't sell this concept. Come back to us with a new concept. And we must have spent four more years sending them more of the same with the mistaken idea, oh, they just haven't seen enough of this concept yet. Uh-huh. No, they, they had seen enough of the concept. They were telling us to switch gears, and we were not getting that memo. You just didn't see that in yeah. their words. Yeah, somehow. I can see that now. But at the time, that was really going over our heads. Fascinating. By the way, Anne, uh, before we resume the storyline for uh, the creation of Edison Lee, tell us about this long-held love that you've had for newspaper comic strips. When did that begin and for any particular reason? I think I was like a lot of kids whose first reading wasn't books. My first reading was my my parents' Peanuts comic book collections. And when I say the first peanuts i mean the really old books from the 50s when mm. when charlie brown when they all looked like really little kids and snoopy's kind of a puppy um between that and my dad was a big fan of new yorker cartoons so there were always like charles adams <coughs> books around the house and things like that 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 i think children understand they they learn to read better when there's a picture that goes with what they're reading uh, and they're drawn to that. So so I was reading comics really early. And, and, and to be fair, too, ours was a newspaper house. Mm. Uh, when we talk about the generation that doesn't read newspapers anymore, it goes way back further than just our current batch of kids. It goes to John's and my, to our generation. Already there were many people when we were growing up who didn't even get a newspaper, who got all their news from the TV or from the radio. So I grew up in a newspaper house. Uh, my parents were avid readers. That kind of pushed me into reading. And so uh, I had definite pet comics that I followed. I was a big fan of Bloom County, um, so much so that before we were married, I had started like cutting them out and putting them in a like a scrapbook for posterity because there weren't any book collections at that time. Wow. So when he says I was like infecting him in his sleep, <laughs> well, maybe I was. <laughs> Fair enough. And a good thing you did. And John, we probably haven't even said this yet, but you, your professional life includes drawing. So it's not that you came to this with any, with a complete lack of expertise, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I was actually, uh, in this story, Ann gets tired of hearing it, but, um, one of my accounts in Chicago at the agency was Keebler. So uh, mm. I was drawing Keebler elves for about three or four years. 
And it was while working on that account that I realized that I could do cartooning, you know, because prior to that, Greg, I really, I wasn't into comics. I wasn't into superheroes as a kid, you know, uh, any of that. So this just came out of nowhere and just smacked me in the head and said, this is what you're going to do. Um, and I'm glad I did because I enjoy doing it. But, boy, it sure took a long time to get to that point. Right. So as you were uh, spinning the tale earlier, you uh, made some of your first attempts but uh, with with rejections. And although I'm sure those rejections stung, uh, something about them, I guess there was enough encouragement uh, in, in, the, in the content of those rejection letters that you did not lose hope. No, no. In fact, I just kept my head down and kept pushing ahead because I, it's interesting. I, I got to the point where I knew that this is what I was going to do. I just knew that. And uh, you're very lucky in life if you get to that point where you see something that you want your life to be all about and you pursue it and you know with a passion. There are so many people wandering around looking for what they want to do in life and this was what I wanted to do, and it hit me, and I was going to make it happen no matter what. And I had no idea at the time the odds right. that this was going to be, you know. And I'm glad I didn't because it <laughs> may have discouraged me. But it's interesting. One of those letters that I found was from a, a, an editor, and uh, I'm good friends with this editor now. And the letter, he or she, I won't even tell you if it was gender because um, the editor commented about how the writing fell flat. And uh, it just didn't have what it what it would take to be syndicated. And I sent this editor that letter just just right before the awards. This editor knew that I was nominated for this big award, mm. and I sent it to. And um, I'll say it. She got back to me and said, <laughs> uh, "It was just a Paul." She says, "Oh my God, did I say that? Oh my goodness!" You know, uh, she felt so horrible about saying something. And I looked at Anne. I said, "This isn't really a bad thing. It's it's." It's constructive criticism like that that helps you move on and, and get better about what you're working on. I do think it was jarring at the time, though, because it was coming at the same time that other editors were not were saying the humor was good. So mm. this is another difficult thing to navigate is you hear one thing from one editor and you hear another thing from another editor. And it reminds you how subjective all of this is. Sure. Absolutely. What I'm also thinking about as as you're describing this is the fact that Obviously, we're talking about two aspects of of a comic strip, the visual and the writing. I mean, the words that are in the comic strip. I mean, unless it's one of those rare instances of a comic strip that has few, if any, words. But yours uh, had words and it had drawings. And um, I suspect that, you know, in a sense, you're kind of juggling two balls. And was there one that felt more comfortable than the other? Or did it always feel like a single piece and you felt like it was just kind of one artistic expression? You know, no one's ever asked me that question in that way before. And that's interesting, Greg, you bring that up because, yes, I the two do go hand in hand. I When I'm writing, it's funny, I'll write a, I'll write a gag, I'll write it, I do my writing on my laptop or on my desktop and I come up with ideas. But then when I draw them up and Anne will often hear me laughing because once I draw them up and I see them on the paper... They're really funny. Hmm. Um, it takes sometimes that moment when you see the physical drawings of these characters that adds that little final touch of humor that makes it work. Interesting. When Hillary Price was here, part of her talk was she said that it, there's 
kind of a famous idea that there are writers who draw and artists who write, you know, mm-hmm. that that each comic comes, that you have a strength in one direction or another. And this is going to sound a little arrogant, but I think John's one of those that it's equally weighted. Mm. I, and I do think that's a little unusual. Right. And I should think most people at least probably regard one as a more natural gift than the other, and the other kind of hauls the other one along. But, yeah, that's cool that you felt comfortable with both both talents. So at some point, does the message start to sink in that we need to create a new concept and ultimately – the Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee is that concept? Absolutely. You know, I, I had done a comic with a little boy in it, and he was a minor character. But uh, as I developed this comic, this little boy just kept screaming out to me, demanding more and more attention. And so I finally gave in and said, okay, let's let's see what you can do, kid. And I started writing some comics for this little boy. He was a smart little genius kid. And... You know, it got mediocre response because it was just a typical kid uh, doing typical things, which you see. And there was nothing really extraordinary about him. And then we had the 2000 presidential election Hmm. and the whole thing with George Bush and uh, the hanging chads and the delay and all that in the Supreme Court. And that got me riled up, Greg. And I started just out of the blue. I just started throwing in these adult situations, this political humor, some of it, a lot of it, into this world with this little kid. It's like putting everything in a blender and turning it on, just seeing what, what comes out. <laughs> and it just, it just the science angle of it and the politics and this little boy and the coming out of his mouth and all that. And I said, that resonated with me. I thought, this is really fun. Let's see where this goes. And I did some of those. And I sent them off. And that's finally what got the attention of uh, one of the editors at King Features who said, I like this. Let's let's develop this into something more. Um, so that's what it took. Mm. I, I give the election credit for a lot. Wow. And I think a really important part of that story is that it was missing passion up until that point. It, If you don't have anything particular to say, if you just see a job you'd like to do, oh, I'd like to do a comic strip, that's one thing. His work really came to life when he now felt he had something to say. And Mm. I think the syndicates, they do, they're looking for a point of view to to a limit. They're not necessarily looking for a soapbox because then they can't sell that across broad audiences, but they are looking for heart. Mm. They're looking for something that's coming from a place deeper inside you that's not just on the surface. And I do think that's part of what made them suddenly take notice. Interesting. So that process of developing it, that was the term I think you used. Mm-hmm. I mean, when this King Features person said, I like this. Um, so what did that development process look like between that moment he said, I like this, to the moment it launched? What needed to happen? Well, I tell people it's a lot like when you're merging onto the highway on an on-ramp. It's sort of you have to get up to speed before you can jump into traffic because it's a, it's a brutal business. I mean, it's a lot of work. They have to, first of all, make sure that you can deliver because mm. uh, I had someone just recently look at me and say, oh, my gosh, you have to make 365 comics a year? And I said, mm. yes. And th- th- they couldn't believe it. It had never dawned on them. Yes, one a day, you know. Um, but it's interesting. The development was was painful in a lot of ways because they they not only need to get it 
uh, make sure you can do the job, but they have to make sure that their sales team can sell it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a whole committee that's making decisions about it. And, and at one point, they wanted me to ditch his glasses, you know. Uh, they wanted me to get rid of the grandfather, which oh. the grandfather in the comic, he's, he's, <laughs> he's the... He's my voice. People ask me, but he's my voice. Uh, a lot of things, and we pushed back on a lot of stuff, and some of the stuff we let slide by. Like he had a little brother at one time originally, and we let that go. But we snuck him back in as our cousin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the the drawing changed uh, a little bit, and I don't have any issues with that because I wasn't happy how he was drawn before the development. But it was about a year-long process where you needed to – they needed to make sure that they could sell this to newspapers because it's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. It really is. And if the sales guys aren't on board, uh, you you don't have anything. They're not going to – it's it's going nowhere. Mm. It's not only that it's hard to sell. You have to think about the fact that something's going to have to leave mm. to get – it's not as though when they buy a new comic, they make more space on the page. Right. They're going to kick somebody else out, somebody who already has a lot of readers who's not going to be happy about that choice. So the editor has to be able to defend the new choice. Right. If we're, if we're dumping Hagar the Horrible, uh, it's for this great reason. We have this new comic strip we think you're going to like or yeah. whatever. We were very lucky in that Foxtrot had stopped doing daily comics. I don't know if you remember that comic. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Don Amond or something? Uh, Bill Amond. Bill Amond, yeah. And they pushed up my launch because he had retired his dailies in the late summer of 2006. And so they pushed up my launch because all of a sudden you have a thousand holes opening up for newspapers and wow. everyone's scrambling Which to Which almost those never happens. Yeah, right, so, right. So they knew they had to get this in right away. So, and I never did know, and I never talked to my editor about that, if. They knew this was coming way before they launched me. I doubt it. I doubt that that had anything to do with them launching my feature. But So it's luck. A lot of it's luck, I things see. like that, where these holes open up and they just scramble to fill them. Right. Well, and of course, uh, as we said, your, your comic strip ultimately debuted in November of 2006. And that's at a point in time when newspapers are already, in a sense, in retreat, in decline. So... In a sense, although the, the Foxtrot thing, that was great timing. But in another th- way, you're trying to break into what is a retreating market. And so the, the fact that you ended up being successful at this point in time, that that's even more notable, it seems to me. To your point, when he just said a thousand holes opened up, if – Foxtrot was still in papers today, and it quit. It would probably be more like 500 holes mm. because that's how many papers have shut down. Wow. It isn't that Bill's strip wouldn't be popular. It's that there wouldn't be as many markets for it to be in. Right. Well, they used to launch two or three features a year, of which one maybe would make it past the first year. I mean, mm. it was, it's, it's difficult. to. It's always that first-year mark. If you can make it past a year or two, then you're okay. Um, and I don't know that we would have made it had not those papers opened up. It's hard to say. Yeah. You know, but we did. So you know, uh, Another, just to stay with your point of how things have changed, when he says they used to launch, you know, two or three a year, that's every syndicate used to launch two or three strips a year. There would wow. be the fall launches. There would be the spring launches. And for context, they, by 2008, 
the door had slammed. There were a couple of years where no one launched anything. Wow. And now they maybe launch one or two a year, sometimes only one, sometimes nothing. Mm. He actually was like if you were looking at graduating classes, um, his was one of the last launches in that environment where there were multiple launches. Wow. And of the strips that launched the same year that he launched, some of them uh, stuck around. Um, but very few of the strips that launched after that gained traction. And that isn't because of the quality of the strips. It's how much tighter the market got. Right. The marketplace is a very, very different place now. It's so interesting, too, to think about. I mean, we, we think of, of comic strips. Uh, I mean, I think sometimes we very much take them for granted in terms of, of the work that is involved in, in putting them together and so on. And, and, and also something that's just supposed to be fun and entertaining it's really hard to kind of reconcile that in our minds with it also being brutal. <laughs> that is, it is a brutal business, uh, and there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes that must feel really, really harsh. Uh, and it's I, just sort of I interesting had, to think about that in this particular arena. I had to watch him continue to meet that daily deadline while dealing with the deaths of three family members in less than 18 months. Wow. And well, you no, still have than, to do the job. Hmm. Yeah. There is a relentlessness to the uh, responsibility. Well, nevertheless, despite all that, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee launches on November 12th, 2006, and it's still very much with us. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with John Hambrock and Ann Morse-Hambrock, talking today about their comic strip, The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee. It does say John Hambrock at the top. He draws it, he writes it, but Ann colors it, so... This is a, and I can tell already from these conversations, and John, I'm sure you'd be the first to agree, Anne plays a very significant role, uh, even if she wasn't coloring the strip, just as an advisor and sounding board and so on. Oh, absolutely. There's something I'm not sure about, I throw it at her. <laughs> and if I get a if I get a laugh, it's a go. If I get a stare, <laughs> or a, what were you thinking, or oh my god, or better yet, if she faints, then I know it's it's a dud. So, um. well, and I've also written some of the gags mm. every once in a while, less yeah. in the last few years. Um, um, John, one of the things about the brilliant mind of Edison Lee that makes it distinct from other comic strips that come to mind, like Doonesbury or Sherman's Lagoon is that there is almost nothing in the way of serialization. I mean, once in a while, but by and large, this is a comic strip where on Monday it's something and on Tuesday it's something completely different. The same characters, of course, but but you are not tying stories together in arcs over the course of, of, of multiple days, uh, on a regular basis at least. Um, is that always the way it's been, and is it that is it that way for any particular reason? I mean, is that just the way your brain works, or or <laughs> for any other reason? Is that something you consciously decided that you did not want to write this strip in that format of of ongoing ongoing stories over the course of successive days? I, planning is what I narrow it down to. I do one big series a year, and I just finished one up this summer. Uh, I did a I did one last summer where the they were at the beach and they get swept out Edison and his grandfather and they wind up on a Russian sub and then on a deserted island. Oh yeah, just, yeah, yeah. It just sort of <laughs> wandered, and that's how they work. And sometimes they go on for six, eight, nine, ten weeks. Um, and I try to do one of those. But my problem, Greg, is when I dive into an idea for a series like that, I have no idea going in where it's going to wind up. 
Mm. I really have no idea. So sometimes I did one years ago where I backed myself into a corner and I went to Anne and I said, how am I going to get out of this? And if you remember Monty Python, when they do a sketch, and then they'd go, and now for something completely different. Right. And I thought, I could just do that. I could just say, okay, we're at the end of this series. We have nowhere we're going with it, so let's just move on to something else. And and I think that would be uh, my way to get out of a, a series that I don't have any idea where it's headed. Um, I like series because it's, it's a different muscle completely. Mm-hmm. You really have to think about uh, – Redundancies, like I when I first did my first long series, I would b- begin each week or even every couple days with, and now here they are on a deserted island, you know. And Anne was like, "You don't need to tell them where they are every day because people are following you." Um, so they're difficult. They're I, I find the the, the joke a day comics easier to do. You know, but sometimes they're not as funny, I think, as some of the longer series. And it's interesting. The feedback I get from readers on the longer series are uh, – the feedback I get is is I get a lot more of it. People mm. love those long series. So. Interesting. Yeah. Of course, even if you don't serialize the way some mm-hmm. comic strips do, you do have themes that come through again and again and certain motifs and so mm-hmm. on. One of them that has leapt out at me recently um, is uh, all the times that – Grandpa and Edison end up at Jolly Burgers, which yeah. is obviously a fast food uh, uh, franchise of your own uh, creation. And uh, they show up there. And uh, recently when you look on the website for uh, Arca Max, I think, which is one of the places you can see your strip online. And and just by coincidence, off to the side is is a little banner ad for McDonald's bringing adult happy <laughs> meals. I wonder what McDonald's thinks of Jolly Burger, because obviously it's not a place that serves very good food. <laughs> that is an endless well of ideas. I love Jolly Burger. I could do a Jolly Burger a week. You know, it just never stops because... Uh, well, just because of what it is. It's so, it's so fun. There's so much to work with there between the employment conditions and the toys they give out and the food that they serve and Orville's just the way he is in the world and, and the way customers are in the world. It, it scratches a lot of itches. That Yeah. Well, and food p- plays a very prominent role. I, I loved a recent uh, strip where where Grandpa is <laughs> – Apparently, sticking two full sticks of butter oh. onto his English muffins. <laughs> when Edison, I think, asks him, "What? Two sticks? Well, yeah, one for the nooks and the other for the crannies." It's- I got to tell you. So when he hands them off to me to color, you know, I often don't even read them until I'm halfway through the coloring process because I'm so focused on getting them done. It, once I read that one, I laughed out loud, and it was one of those that every time I see it, I laugh out loud again. I just thought that was so brilliant, ones for the nooks and ones for the crannies. I think it especially leapt out at me because my best friend, who's watching his weight very, very carefully, he mentioned uh, right around the time that strip appeared that uh, his breakfast English muffin, where he has breakfast, they buttered it by accident because he usually eats a dry Eng- I mean, a English muffin with nothing on that it. That defeats I, the purpose of well, an English muffin. I, I can't even imagine what that would taste like. So then to see Grandpa with two full sticks of butter, <laughs> that just uh, that that was funny to me. I, I wanted to mention another strip from fairly recently that I absolutely loved. And this was one of your rare single panel strips. Those don't happen too often. And uh, Edison and his dad are playing catch, of all things. And, of course, one can hardly imagine this bespeckled little nerd uh, playing catch, but his dad's insisting on it. <laughs> so, see, how did that go? Um, 
So, uh, yeah, the dad says to Edison, you're supposed to catch the ball. And Edison fires right back and says, you're supposed to hit the glove. Yeah. <laughs> that, that just seems like a uh, some kind of metaphor for a, a lot of the things that we, about that which we don't understand. That sums up relationship and who he is probably better than most. So it's exactly. It's so funny when I throw sports at him because he just turns it on his head. He has no interest in sports whatsoever. And, and to have his dad continually try to drag him into football or whatever it is it's it's there's all there's always a funny ending with those i like doing those right and and talk for a moment about edison's brilliance i mean he is especially although he's really interested in politics and current events i mean much more so than the typical 10 year old i mean probably his most ferocious passion and what we see the most from him is his incredible love of science and the crazy inventions and so on that he creates does that spring out of your own interest in science? And to what extent do you have to be careful about the way in which you write about some of that stuff to be scientifically correct? Well, instance? first of all, I put brilliance in quotations because he's, <laughs> he's – and that's always been the point. He, he thinks he's smarter than he is. Ah, right. Me. Good point. <clears throat> I've always loved science. And when I was in school, I was huge in biology. And I wanted to be a marine biologist, actually, is what oh. I wanted to do. Uh, but, you know, of course, I chose cartooning instead uh, or of graphics course. for that. <laughs> I love science. I love physics. I love putting it into the comic. And um, I do it with a f- fair degree of accuracy. I mean, I don't just throw stuff out there because readers will, will nail you. I well, just, right. In the same way that the yeah. writers of, of The Big Bang Theory, absolutely, the, 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 the sitcom that uh, went off the air not too long ago. But, that I mean, they also, I think – write what they write with a very careful eye towards being as correct as they can be. Because somebody will point out your 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 error. And I have an example. Years ago, I did a comic where reasons for going back to the moon, and it, I had a, 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 it was a one panel, and I had a man on the moon standing on a, a scale. He was had a, a counterbalance scale on the moon. The kind you have at the doctor's office. Ah, and somebody wrote in and says, "Well, that the, kind of a scale wouldn't wouldn't work on the moon. You know, you can't." Well, no, it wasn't that the scale wouldn't work. It's that the joke involved gravity being less, and that you'd be lighter. Like yeah. that, the scale would show yeah. you a different uh, number, I, I, and that sorry, kind of scale to... wouldn't do that uh, on the moon. Uh, yeah, okay. I forgot to tell you the, yeah. the whole point of the joke <laughs> yeah. was that you'd weigh less on the moon. Hey, look, I lost fifty pounds. Yeah, okay, great. The scale says so. Well, not that scale because that scale wouldn't work. And I remember when that reader wrote to me and said that I was I, I and had then this, it was more than one reader I had this yeah it, it started coming I thought oh I can't wait for this day to be over please just mm. get till tomorrow's comic yeah. I mean big error and I should have I should have known that Greg but you know what you can't the scale was too interesting not to draw <laughs> it had to be a counterbalance scale it couldn't be the the ones you put on the floor with the right, strings right so but you make mistakes like that and readers pointed out but they, they're very forgiving They'll they'll move on and they they don't they don't hold grudge too much, <laughs> but they you. love pointing out when you make a mistake. Oh, I am sure they do. I'm sure that in the same way that public radio listeners oh, love yeah, to point yeah. out when someone yeah. has split an infinitive or 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 done something more <laughs> okay. significant than that, that, we we hear about it and that's just fine. Well, here you are, all these years later. You uh, again, the the comic strip has debuted in two thousand six, and I'm pretty sure you've not gone any kind of hiatus since then? I mean, has it been every single day since November yes. 12, 2006? Yes. Wow. Written in what kind of batches? I mean, 
do you write? I mean, do you sit down and just churn, or or is, or is that very hard to sort of summarize? I mean, seven a week. Okay, really, pretty much on deadline. Yeah, no, there's no working ahead. I'm supposed to be, but I don't. I just don't work that way. There are some artists who do. I think Stefan Fastus is months ahead, mm-hmm. uh, and then they maybe do write in big batches, but. And then yeah. he's off to Tahiti for a yeah. little while. But uh, <laughs> some of these guys, they work a year. Gals and guys work a years a year ahead. Mm. Oh yeah, but I can't. I can't imagine that. What does that look like to me? And you know, to be fair, there are some cartoonists that use gag writers, and and that's fine. That happens, and I get it. There are times when I wish I had somebody throwing me stuff that I could just take a week and coast. Yeah, and, um, I should think. Uh, it's tricky, but not just for that reason, but also the fact that when you write a given strip, it, it does not appear the next day, not by any means. Mm-hmm. But it, And that makes it tricky for you to be as current as you would probably like to be in terms of commenting on things. Yeah, I'm supposed to be working six weeks. I'm working three weeks out. So the stuff I'm writing now will run uh, middle of November. I think an important point on that is that back when he first launched – uh, that was the news cycle. That w- that was much more in keeping mm. with the news cycle. And there were only a couple people like Gary Trudeau whose syndicates allowed them to be on a shorter leash than that, a shorter mm. deadline than that. Um, since the Internet changed everything, some of the syndicates have changed their deadline schedule and some of them have not. Uh, so the, there are artists working who are allowed to get like right up to it. Mm. But it's a very dangerous thing to do because what if you're dry? Like, like now you're right up against when it's going to run, and what ah, if you've got nothing? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting term, dry. Yeah. I bet <laughs> it's, a, it's a feeling I'm sure you're acquainted with from time to time. Yes, you get that blank stare, a blank piece of paper, and you don't know what you're going to put on it, and and it's frightening sometimes. And then all of a sudden, something will just pop up. Think about Grandpa for a minute. There a, you go. An English muffin, and there <laughs> right. you go. There you go. Butter. And or, it, it's all done. Or it's time for another trip and to Jolly Burger. It's funny. It's, I always liken it like when someone hits a home run, you know the minute that ball leaves the bat, that that's out of the park. And that's how it is with comics. If you write something, you know immediately, oh, this is it. No question. Right. I'm, I'm going to disagree with that. What? In that sometimes, I've heard this from many cartoonists, they just throw that last one in that they thought of to make batch. And they don't even think it's very good, and it's the favorite of the week. Ah. Oh, I've had that so, happen too. So I don't yeah. know that it's always true that you know right. like, which ones are going to hit. Right, right. Oh. Interesting. Well, it is time for us to talk about this marvelous award given to the uh, brilliant mind of Edison Lee, namely the Silver Rubin for newspaper comic strips. First of all, say a quick word about the organization uh, that bestowed this award, the National Cartoonist Society. Well, we're a society of about 500 members, cartoonists from all over the world, um, working in the profession. Every Most of the newspaper comics you read, are, most of those are members. Uh, it was actually started in 1946 mm. by a small group of about 32, uh, including Rube Goldberg, uh, mm. Milton Kniff, uh, Otto Soglo. A lot of those people were the original members. In fact, Rube Goldberg was the 
uh, original first president of the NCS, and the Reuben is named after Rube Goldberg, of course. Okay. So mm-hmm. that's where the big Reuben comes in. It's not a sandwich, you know. <laughs> um, it's Rube Goldberg. And the award is actually designed using his characters. It has these, I wish I had a picture of it to show you, Greg. It has these figures all around the edge of it. It's this plaque uh, that he designed um, all those years ago. It's a really wonderful and award. And the big award for the Cartoons of the Year is an actual statue of those figures. Ah, okay. Yeah. So. so you were nominated for this award. Had you been, I'm pretty sure you'd been nominated before? Two other times. I was nominated in 2009 and 2018. Okay. So, yeah. And this was bestowed to you, I, from what I appears from the photograph I saw, at some kind of big awards banquet? We have our big Reuben Awards every year. It's where we all get together and, and <laughs> say, greet each other. You know, you got to remember, we're all like a big family. So it's like a big family reunion every mm-hmm. year. And then we have this big banquet where we hand out the awards for all the different divisions. You know, um, we have panel cartoons and comic strips and... and uh, and greeting cards. And lots yeah. of others, yeah. So we had our big convention this year in Kansas City, and uh, I was nominated again. I was up against Mark Tutuli, who does Leo. We had a mm. lot of Leo fans in Kenosha before they took it away. Mm. And and Hector Cantu, who does the comic Baldo, if anybody's heard of yeah. Baldo. And I was up against those two, and I thought, wow. Uh, I, I went back and forth between, oh, I can... I can win this to, oh, my gosh, these are two giants. I'm mm. not going to, there's no way I'm going to take this award. Um, but but we did it. We, we did. And, and a little more context, it, it, people often say it's like the Oscars. It really is like the Oscars of cartooning. And, and something that John kind of breezed over, it's an international membership. You know, it's oh, called yes. the National Cartoonist Society, but it is an international organization. So there are members voting from all over the world, you know, mm. not not just America, too. And so there are other there are cartoonists from outside America who win awards at just just the same way they do for for Oscars. It, it really is the biggest honor you can receive in the profession. And it's bestowed by your peers. That yes. This is They're not a bunch of... Vote. Yeah, this They're is not, not of, the people's choice. Yeah. This, yeah. And this is not critics either. Right. This is your fellow cartoonists. Or the Golden I, Globes. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, t- describe the moment when I assume your name was announced. Well, it's funny. They announce... It's, it's just like the Oscars. They announce the newspaper comic second to last before the, the big cartoonist of the year. So you have to wait through the entire evening... And as they're getting close to it, you know, I could, I felt my, for the first time, because I've been nominated, I've been down this road before and never felt like this, but somehow or another I had a feeling this would be the year. I could just feel my heart about leaping mm. out of my chest. And they, 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 you know, Jim Davis, who does Garfield, he was the one that gave out the award this year for wow. cartoonists. So, so when Jim went up on stage and announced the three nominees, at that point I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can, you know, I could just feel this. And when he announced my name, I just had this sense of relief. I looked at Anne. I went over and gave her a big kiss. And I walked up on stage. And and, um, and he has no memory after that. <laughs> it's like it's like no moment I had ever experienced. Because here wow. you are in front of your, all your peers. I, I mean, Gary Trudeau's 10 feet away sitting there. You know, wow. And, and everybody's there uh, watching you get this big industry award. And it's a huge, huge deal. And an honor, you know. And so I 
Apparently, I gave a really nice speech. He gave a wonderful <laughs> speech. <laughs> I don't remember. You just can't remember. And, and, and so I have yeah. to wedge in what happened because I think this happens to a lot of people. So I'm going to make a public service announcement that every mobile phone developer ever anywhere switches the video thing from a red square and a red circle to a green light and a red light <laughs> because I tried to videotape his speech and I thought I hit record when I hit stop recording. Oh, no. And so I have not got his speech on oh. video. So let's change that to red and green so no we can see kidding. it in a dark room. Oh, uh, shucks. I'm still mad about that. <laughs> but it's nice to be at this point. I mean, this was this was a 30-year journey. It's been a long journey, Greg. It really, really mm-hmm. has. With a, and so much work has gone into it. And to have that is sort of the cap on this I won't say long career because my career is not over yet. I'm, I'm continuing to do it. Um, but uh, to have it happen at this moment. Um, it's a big boost. I think having it happen now as opposed to when I was nominated four years ago or even early on in 2010, uh, it wouldn't have been as special. This mm. this made it even more special because it's just more anguish went into it to get to this point. So That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. And – uh, does it give you, I, I assume it gives you kind of a new energy for what what comes next. I mean, I mean I, I'm guessing you you feel like from this point on you want to continue to be worthy of this award that you were You given. do do that. You have this sort of, um, yeah, I sat there for the first couple of weeks. I keep the award next to my desk, and I'm thinking, okay, I have to live up to this now. You know, no more, no more garbage. I'm not going to put anything out there that doesn't live up to this award. There's no you garbage. Know, they, it's the imposter syndrome. You're like, wow, how did I? How really? How did I get this award? Um, but yeah, you, 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 you. Well, I always do. You know, I never try to put anything out there that's not doesn't meet my standard. I would never put anything in the paper that I didn't feel lived up to it, and I've always held that high standard. Which, on one hand, makes it a, a good comic, but on the other hand, makes you crazy because you're always trying to live up to this high ideal, and mm. it's tough. Mm. So. It it seems to still feel incredibly fresh to you, even though, uh, as far as I can tell, not much has occurred in terms of the evolution of Edison Lee. I mean, as far as I know, he's still 10 years old, just like he was back in 2006, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. <laughs> Grandpa's still with us, although by now he should probably be 110. But, but I mean, you're, you're as, as many comic strips do, you're holding your characters, in a sense, in stasis, at least in terms of a lot of the basics. But it sounds like that there's nothing inhibiting about that. I mean, that you still... F- are able to find freshness even within a very consistent framework. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to answer some of that in that I used to watch him struggle to write. I would say the first four years were the hardest because you're still learning that muscle. Mm. Now, he he, I always know. I always know he's going to come up with the batch. There's, there's never a week where he's going to say, I've got nothing. Mm. It, it seems he just has settled into it so well. Right. Yeah, and you know, when I first started out, uh, I was heavy into the politics, and it was very heavy-handed political Mm. commentary, and I just pounded away at that for two or three years, and that turned off a lot of readers, and I still do that because my syndicate 
wants me to continue doing exactly what I'm doing. They keep telling me over and over, just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing everything right. So, but I do it in a way now that's a lot subtler. I, mm. I, I, um, and less frequent. I, mm. Less frequent. And I do it in a way because, and I'll be honest, I made that big shift uh, in 2016. I really did. Because uh, we're all, we were all getting tired of the politics around us. And it just felt like a time to pull back. And, and I did. I mean, I still have exhausting. the senator. Senator mm. Ottoman is still one of my main characters. And I use him as a... A punching bag, pretty much, for the whole system as it is, and and you can't look at him and say, well, he's a Republican or he's a Democrat. He's a politician, hmm. and I don't like beating up on politicians because I think you know that we have a lot of honorable people that work for our government. Um, but he just offers a chance to poke. It, but he's a particular flaws. breed of professional yeah. politician, right. yes. right? Out kind for of his old, own ends, yeah. An old school, yeah. I yeah. mean, but in the and the worst. Because early on, world. I was targeted as this extreme lefty, you know, because and that's honestly that's one of the reasons King Features wanted to launch me was they needed a left leaning voice, mm. you know, to counter some of the right leaning comics that they had. So that was part of their decision. Um, but I don't want to work that way anymore. I want to be sort of just straight down the middle. I don't want to – it's not that I don't want to offend anybody, but that's just where I am in my life. And I want it to reflect who I am, not who I think people want to see or hear. So. Mm. Well, you're doing something right because you have a very <laughs> impressive trophy on your shelf, and it is very, very highly deserved. I'm sure everybody who reads and enjoys The Brilliant Mind of Edison Lee will completely agree that you are fully deserving of the silver ruben for newspaper comic strips. And uh, – it's been great to talk with you about the comic strip and where it's been and where it might be headed. Uh, and uh, we didn't even get to something that Anne mentioned uh, to me at some point, which is that recently you, what did you do, journeyed around the rim of the Grand Canyon? No, in a single I, hiked, I hiked, hiked rim to rim through the middle of the Grand Canyon. All the way across, <laughs> 24 miles, is it? Yeah, but the, the, the thing one that day. I'm proud of, one day, yeah. Which, again, like syndication, I had no idea when I went into it how dangerous and foolish it might have been. I was going to say that. that yeah. So it's not temporary insanity. It's just abject yeah, I, ignorance. That, I did uh, that in do. May, and it was it was insanely difficult and just made it up the other. Because it's a mile down all that way across and a mile up. And know. to be fair, he did it with people who had done it before, but they had never done it in higher than 90, like 94 degrees. Yeah. The day they did it this time, 104, oh almost all gosh. the way across. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful that you're alive and well. and <laughs> Me too. To be, that you lived to get your award. I mean, wow. Well, congrats on that. But more to the point, congratulations on receiving the Silver Rubin for newspaper comic strips. Congratulations to you both. Thank you, Greg. And, you know, Anne deserves it as much as I do with all her her support and all her color. Uh, She's just incredible. Fantastic. Well, it's been great to talk with both of you about it. And we wish you well with all of the comic strips that you are yet to give to the world with the brilliant mind of Edison Lee, John Hambrock, and Ann Morse Hambrock. So good to have you here on The Morning Show. Well, Greg, it's been great. Thanks. Thank you so much. Congratulations. You bet.